0: Welcome to Project Recovery, brought to you by the Pinnacle Recovery Center. It's where my road to recovery began. Uh, This is a podcast about addiction and, well, more importantly, about recovery. I am Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. How are you? I'm doing really great. How are you, Casey? All right, you ready to attack this week? Well, I mean, the week's getting close to being over, but sure. Why <laughs> I'm we ready, just, finally. Why don't we just play on the pretense that this is going to drop on Tuesday? Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Rewind. Are you ready to attack this week? I
1: am ready. With vim and vigor? <laughs> you bet.
0: All right. And uh, we, we're really honored today because we've got a broadcast legend in the we studio do. today himself randall carlisle how are you sir i'm doing great today i appreciate you inviting
2: me to be on
0: all right now before we get into uh kind of your story and everything that is randall carlisle i want to tell you that uh, it was probably two years ago or three years ago i was working at channel 2 And I I had to do a morning bit, so I had to run over to the Harmon's and get some flowers to go out there and hand them out on the street. And And, I was working there. Yes, and I was checking out. You actually stopped me. I don't know if you remember this. You said, hey, Casey, I just want to tell you, I really like your stuff. Right. And to me— that meant the world because I grew up watching you and I wanted to model myself after you and, and be like you. And and when you said that, I was like, wow, Randall Carlisle knows who I am. And I mean, it was a it was a big, big deal for me. And then to see you working the, the checking station. And, and so I went back and I kind of asked some people about the story and, and they kind of gave me a cliff note version, which we're going to get in a bit. But I thought, what a great guy to, to, to want to fight back and give everything and, and, and did the job. And it was a lot of the reason why, right out of recovery, I started delivering furniture. Because I said, I need a job. Sure. I need to do sure. something. And I can't let my ego say that I'm not allowed to do this job. Because I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't do it because like hey I was on TV I'm not going to I'm not going to bag someone's groceries I'm not going to move someone's furniture but the reality is I needed a paycheck I need to pay alimony I need to pay rent so I need a job and so I took the first job that was offered to me you said you wanted to be just like me. Yeah, you did,
2: you did a really good job. Of that, didn't You, <laughs> <laughs> you nailed know, yeah. it. So the thing is, is uh, we, I,
0: we I, even drank the same drink? Yeah, yeah, Bud Light. Yeah, you know he he sent me a text and he goes, you know, your story mirrors my story. Uh, before we get to Randall's story, uh, just last week in the news, uh, a fellow broadcaster. Uh, got a DUI and then got another DUI and uh, it really hit close home to me because mine is not even a year old. And so I'm and we're talking about Hopewood side of Fox 13 and she did it
2: two days in a row.
0: Yeah. yeah and so I you know a lot of people reached out on the project recovery podcast uh, Facebook and said you should reach out to Hope and, and I did send her a text um, I didn't get a reply, but I just said, hey listen, I understand kind of what you're going through because everyone's story is different. Uh, haven't been just through what you're going through now. If you need someone to talk to, it doesn't have to be on the podcast. It doesn't have to be anything. Right. I just, you know, sometimes all you want is somebody to listen to you and, 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 and not judge. And that's what I said. It will be a judgment free zone. I'm just here to listen to you because sometimes in that dark hour, you just want to be able to talk to somebody.
2: I, I've been friends with hope for uh, 20 years or whatever. And I, I reached out to her as well. And, uh. Yeah, I mean, I I I was shocked when I read that. I mean, even though Hope and I partied a lot, uh, I you know I was I was shocked over that. But again, you know, she's also I my worst drinking was after I left TV the first time, not by choice. And uh, I don't know what her circumstances were, but uh, it you know that. The idea of not having the job that you. Not having the th- stage. That was you, you know, for yeah. all those years. You kind to go through yeah. an identity crisis.
0: So, because. Hope, hope will get help, and she, you know, and that's great. But the know. only reason I bring it up, and I want to bring it up in front of you, Matt, as well, is. Um, I read some of the Facebook comments and, you know, which is a bad idea. And I've talked to you a little off air about this is that, you know, 90% of the people on there were wanting hope to get help and wondering if there's something they could do. And there was 10% that would just vilify her. And the thing that I, I wanted to bring up, and one thing that really struck a chord with me is there's got to be something going on in that industry with <laughs> me, with Shauna Lake, with Hope Woodside. What's going on? And, and I wanted to say, I don't think it's an industry thing. I think it, it, it's just what's going on. Ours is just more visual than anybody else's.
2: Well, it, it, you and I were talking off the air, and if it'd be uh, a construction worker, uh, somebody who works at Harmons. Uh, and they got busted two or three days in a row it would never make the paper it would never make the news and it's just because people in our industry are very visible and and when we screw up you know people people write about it and people talk about it but i you know and we do have an industry that is known for partying uh, or, you know drugs, sex, and rock and roll, you know, that's, that's always been the image of people in, in the media. But I don't think it's, I don't think we have more of a problem than anybody else. I always know. say
0: we live our life in front of the camera, and what goes off the camera also goes on it, you know, in, in a sense. Is yeah, that, you know, yeah. I mean, that's how we made our money, so when things are going good, we can't just show the good. So when something bad happens to sure. us, it becomes the news. And
2: I, and I think it's totally fair, because you are a you're a visible person in the community hope is you, know, you are i i was i I was smart enough not to follow in your footsteps in terms of DUIs. So, yeah. You know. and,
0: and, 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 and that's the other thing is that, yeah, the DUI, they are going to get punished by the court, whatever the court system deems. And the other thing is that there's something going on. So let's talk about something going on. Let's go to the Randall Carlisle story. Now, you moved here in 1980, but you actually started in radio where before that? Uh, I started when I was 14 in a little
2: town in Ohio and worked my way up in radio to a giant AM station back before the days of FM uh, in Detroit. And then I decided to get into TV because people in Detroit TV were making a lot more than people in Detroit radio. Uh, and then I went to, from the only place that would offer me a job was Colorado Springs. I went there to Dayton, Ohio, to Salt
0: Lake City, to Minneapolis, to Dallas, and back to Salt Lake City. All right, now let's find out about your drinking a little. Did you start drinking as a a teenager? Yeah,
2: I started when I was, I think I was 14. I was always very insecure socially, and I'm not sure why, Uh, very insecure around girls at the time, Uh, and I, I can't remember where I was, but the first time I got high drinking, I felt secure and I felt great, and I just kept, you know, I drank through high school, drank through college. And kept drinking the rest of my fifty years in broadcasting.
0: You know that a lot of people in the partying world they call that liquid courage. You know, yeah, I sure. mean, you get a couple beers in you, your confidence goes up. You say things that you normally wouldn't, or you know, and, and that's and so you started and realized that at a young age. Yeah, and I and I just stuck with that,
2: uh, and I was I was a totally functional alcoholic for all those years. I never. When I, when I talk about it now, people say, God, I was watching you on the air, and you didn't look drunk. And I said, well, I wasn't <laughs> drunk. Uh, and being an evening main anchor is a perfect shift for a functional alcoholic, if you think about it. I'd go into work at 2, get off at 10.35. I could then start drinking until I passed out to like around 1 or 2 in the morning and sleep till noon. And, and so I never went to work dr- drunk. I never drank at work. I but and I function fine professionally. Personally, but, my life sucked.
1: But that was a nightly routine for it you. It was
2: every single day, every night, for almost forty some years. And
1: that was drinking not just to no, it was drinking in, to pass to out. pass out. Yeah. right. Okay.
2: And I and somebody asked me at an AA meeting once. Somebody brought it up. Say, did you ever drink for any other reason than to get drunk? And I didn't. Even for, you know because in your teenage years that's why you drank that was the main goal yeah and in college and like, i think I a was...
1: lot of teenagers have the same experience you're talking about where the you know in psychology we talk a lot about behavior getting reinforced or punished and if you were socially anxious especially around girls when you were 14 15 and that's the most important thing when you're that age right. is to feel comfortable around the opposite sex and you drank and you felt comfortable then that was highly reinforced so your you your brain starts to to crave that feeling of comfort and alcohol is a pretty quick way to make that happen so it starts off that way but then eventually from for most people, it becomes I just want to feel detached. I want to feel drunk. I want to right. drink every night.
2: I mean, I didn't. My, one of my hardest things when I got sober was sleeping because I I I can't remember. I mean, I I I know now, but I can't remember ever going to sleep. But I I passed out almost every single night, mm. so there was no natural sleep, and I didn't know what lying in bed thinking about stuff
0: was like because my brain was numb. See, for no. a lot of, for, for me, myself, uh, a lot of times I would drink so I wouldn't have to think because if right. I would lay there in bed, my mind would go a million different places. I would start to get a panic attack. And so I would say, you know what, if I just have two beers, I won't think about it and I'll <laughs> just go to sleep. And so, I mean, it's a way of self-medicating. Yeah. Now, when you were in your early infancy of your career and the broadcast journalism and the radio, uh, was was the rest of the coworkers drinking like you did? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I worked at, I worked at
2: this station in Detroit. Uh, we hit 28 states and five provinces, and we were in our 20s, and our after-a-minimum starting wage was 50000 a year, which—and this is back in the early 70s— and so we thought we were just like mega stars. That was a big income at that time. Oh, horribly big. For
1: especially for a young kid. Yeah, right? yeah,
2: exactly. And and we were all just crazy partiers. And and we were the we were the number one rock and roll station in town. So you could go to any bar and pick up a woman, do whatever you wanted. You had groupies hanging around, and it was a it was an exhilarating time. And so we all partied like that. And when I got into T V not as much. I mean there were, you know, a mixture of
0: the party people and the non-party people so now when you were doing that uh, did you guys had ever think hey maybe we're have a problem <laughs> or or was it just hey we don't have a problem we've got this this is what we're supposed to do throughout my whole i, I went
2: through four wives okay and they all complained that i drank too much and my com and, and friends would say you know you, you really drink a lot and i say yeah i do drink a lot but it's not a problem mm-hmm. Uh, and I went through that, you know, that denial thing for for decades, even though, and, and my mom is still alive. She's 91. Uh, and I talked to her about this. She's very happy I'm sober now. Uh, and and uh, alcoholism runs in my, on the paternal side of my family through at least four generations. And so I was, <laughs> I was primed to become an alcoholic. But the, my point of you know, you could say that to anybody saying if it runs in your family, you know, maybe you should think about not drinking because you could become an alcoholic. My mom said to me the other day, she said if I would have told you when you were 14 that you that alcoholism runs on the paternal side of your family, uh and maybe you ought to think about not drinking, would you have stopped drinking? <laughs> no, you know. <laughs> because I pictured alcoholics as people sitting on the on the street corner with a, with a paper bag and drinking out of the bag and shaking. That's, that was my
0: image of an alcoholic. So, and, and so four wives, and uh, may I ask, did they all leave because of the drinking? Drinking was one of the primary
2: issues. Uh, and, you know, and the fact that I, you know, my, my world focused on work and then drinking and then everything else after that. And so if there was a social event that my wife would want to go to or something my first question was will they be serving booze uh and 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 i didn't go anywhere without you know golf i love golf but i i drank a beer every hole uh, and i'd come back just totally blotto after a sunday i mean i i didn't do anything without drinking except work and so when i was home I was never present for my wife. She and if if my wife would have a beef with me and say we really need to talk, I'd say good, let's go to a restaurant and then I'd drink and she could have a glass of wine and that was that was our form of talking. So I you know, and 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 every time I got divorced it was like I back in those days I blamed it all on her. I said, "Oh, it's her fault. She's uh whatever." And 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 now that I've been sober like seven years, I look back and I think (laughs) it was primarily my fault,
0: you know. So we're talking with Randall Carlisle. This is Project Recovery. Stick around more with Randall coming up next. All right, welcome back to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction and, well, more importantly, recovery. We've got uh, broadcast legend Randall Carlisle here. He's walking us kind of through the early years of uh, your career and your alcohol. Now, let me ask you this. Was alcohol always your drug of choice? I mean, is that is that what your downfall was? Always.
2: I mean, I dabbled in back in the 60s when I was in college. I I tried LSD. I smoked opium. I've smoked pot many times. But I just preferred Bud Light. Yeah. How do you like that, Anheuser-Busch? <laughs> <laughs> when I got sober, their stock
0: went down. Boy, between you and me, yeah, you know, I, we I, killed them. I was uh, the, the country club where I go golfing with my father. They just got a brand new bar, and uh, they didn't realize I went sober. So I don't know how they're going to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, you, so you did that for how many years were you on air here in Salt Lake City? Between Channel 2 and Channel 4, probably close to 30 and uh, do you feel like there was a lot of pressure on you during those times? I, it was self-imposed pressure.
2: I mean, you 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 know every job. It, it all depends on how you deal with the job. And and me personally, I always have been a perfectionist. I always wanted things to be perfect. I wanted to be number one. I wanted to have every newscast have no mistakes. Uh, and so I put that pressure on myself. But I mean, there is a lot of pressure in in the broadcast industry. As people strive toward perfection and ratings, uh, but it's how you respond to it. I think is what's important. And I always responded feeling that kind of pressure because I put it on myself.
1: Now, can I can I ask? So you had mentioned uh, earlier that your drinking was a nightly routine. All those years, right. you were getting off the news at ten thirty-five and heading out to drink until you passed out at one or two. But. Taking that knowledge, combining it with this desire to be number one, to have perfect broadcasts, did you ever, during those 30 years, start to put together, like, maybe I'm not my best self, maybe if I cut back on my drinking, or did those two seem like separate issues to you?
2: They seemed separate, because I was pretty consistent on the air. Uh, Made very few mistakes ever. Yeah. Was sharp enough and and, and knowledgeable enough about news that if something... If something happened, like a live shot went down, or that, or, or whatever, yeah. I could ad lib yeah. uh, about about a news story and everything. So it never occurred to me. Yeah. I mean, it's occurred to me now. I wonder how much more successful I could have been had I not been doing that. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know. And,
1: you know, the reality is it's a little surreal for me even to be sitting here talking to you because I grew up watching you on TV, and and I don't know that you could have been more successful. But the reality is I think what you're describing is similar to almost everyone's story, and that is that there is this disconnect between... Uh, My performance in life, or or a lot of times we talk about people's professions like Casey's and yours and others, and, and the drinking and not making that connection that I might be better at what I do if I was in control of my drinking. And over time, those two eventually clash for most people
2: well and they they did for me as well and i, and I don't know why i never thought about that until i got sober maybe because i wasn't yeah <laughs> it's usually, it's usually I don't the know. process of you well know.
1: denial's a powerful thing and we all have our areas of life that we're in denial about and it's um often that uh, uh, when a person's drinking they're the most in denial. The people around mm-hmm. them, like you had mentioned, ex-wives and friends saying, hey, you, you drink a lot. <laughs> and, and, but they're not in denial about it, but the, right. the individual is.
2: And, and, I, and my argument always with my wives, I sound like I live in Utah when I say <laughs> that, don't I? You do. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do live in we Utah. We want to talk to you about a reality <laughs> show for you later. <laughs> uh, my, my response was always, look, I have this good job I bring home a good paycheck. Mm -hmm. I'm under a lot of pressure, so just go with the flow Mm -hmm. and and just accept the fact that I drink a lot. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I never... I never really did any self-examination, you know. and,
0: and That self-introspection that's so I mean, key to your recovery. But it's
2: something you don't do
0: when alcohol or drugs have
2: hijacked your brain.
0: Well, I don't think know. there's ever a class on that. No, you know, no one ever tells you this, you know, and, and until you get these tools. And that's what this podcast is about. And you said when you early started drinking, um, you did it for kind of courage and, right. and for that. When you got into the broadcast years and you're doing a nightly newscast, did the drinking then become a way... To kind of relieve the pressure that you self-imposed. Yeah, I just wanted to block everything out when I went home, uh, because I had the same problem
2: you did. Because I would, I would relive the 10 p.m. newscast if if I hadn't been drinking. When and if I drank to the point that I would pass out, I wouldn't think about it. But I'd say I, I'm the type of person that after a After a newscast, I'd say, you know, we could have done this better, could have done that better. I wish when I had Lib to the weather guy, I would have said this, not that. And I just picked myself apart every night, and I didn't want to, I just wanted to forget about it all. And that was an easy
0: way of doing it. It was a quick
2: way of blocking out the day's activities.
0: Wow. So we got Randall Carlisle here, and he's talking about his addiction with alcohol. And so you mentioned earlier uh, you lost the job first time for alcohol. Can you walk us through I that? Didn't,
2: I didn't lose it for alcohol. Uh, I was very lucky. I never got fired for that. Uh, a new company bought Channel 4, a giant conglomerate. And after like 23 years, one day I was called up to the GM's office And he said, we've decided to go a different direction, and we'd like you to leave today. We'll pay you for the rest of your contract. And it was like out of the clear blue. There were no warnings. There there was nothing. And it it didn't have anything to do with my drinking that I knew of because I never was drinking at work or coming to work drunk.
0: Was there ever any talk uh, about your drinking with coworkers? No. Um, I
2: mean, even the GM who fired me on that day was somebody I golfed with every Sunday, and he got drunk with me. So I mean, like, no, there wasn't. No, it was like he drinks a lot, but he comes in, and he does a professional job. So who's gonna, who's gonna question him about it? You know that coming so out of the blue. Uh, talk a little bit about
1: how that affected you emotionally. Well, and I went out it... and got drunk. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, how did how did what was that like? I was because, crushed yeah. because that
2: was my life. You know that yeah. and drinking, and uh, so I, uh, I, I. I had trouble dealing with that, and that was um, that was believe it or not. I, I'll give you the timetable here. Uh, I went before that all happened. I, thanks to pressure from my fourth wife, I went to uh, detox and recovery at Uni, uh, an outpatient program, and and came out of it sober. Obviously, as most of us do, coming out of a treatment program. Uh and after I got sober, that's when I lost and I'd been clean for nine months. My wife left me then and I lost my job. Oh, and so okay. it was like it was like, now wait a minute. I was good things are supposed <laughs> to happen when you get <laughs> you sober. You finally and got I, sober and then I finally the get two sober big and things. my wife leaves me and I lose my job. And um what that said to me in my alcoholic brain was, "Hey, <laughs> this is a good reason to drink," and I started. And I and not only that, you you can drink full time now because you don't have to worry about being sober to go to work. <laughs> no wife, no job. And so I really, uh, I really hit it hard. And I can't remember how long that lasted. And I was I was to the I was so bad that. Uh, when I woke up in the morning, I had to drink three or four beers before my hand was steady enough to shave. Mm. Uh, And I I just went at it full blast because I thought, well, sobriety didn't really do me any good. I lost my wife. I lost my job. And Mm. after doing that, I became more and more depressed, feeling worse about myself. I'd cut off all my friends. I really isolated at that point, just made sure that I had enough Bud Light in the house. And uh, at one point, I called one of the therapists that I had met through the, my first time through the outpatient program at uni. And she said, if you can make it to detox, they have a bed. This was like a Saturday morning. Mm. And I, <clears throat> I live in a downtown. i am I, tell you, I, I don't mind saying where I live in American Towers. And we share a parking lot on P1 with the Hilton Hotel and i was drunk by the time i had called her Mm. and i remember stumbling through she said if you can get there and so i went down to p1 hoping to get over to the hilton because it's easier to get a cab that was this is before uber and uh, i stumbled and fell several times on the p1 level got to the hilton hotel elevator came up to to a crowded lobby And I'm stumbling and falling through a crowded lobby, and I'm sure people recognize me. And I got out to the curb, and the bell, the bell, sky cap guy, or whatever you call them, helped me into a cab. And I went up to Uni, and went through detox again, went through recovery work again, second time, second time around, and have been sober ever since for seven years.
0: All right, I want to find out more about that uh, a little later on in the podcast. But I want to talk about when you lost your job and your wife left and you started drinking and you said you went out it full time. How long did you go at it full time for? See, I'm, t- I'm trying to
2: remember because I was drunk all the time. You're asking me a question. <laughs> uh, it, it was for a period of several months. And I just became so... I just I, I hated myself. I f- I felt terrible. I I was more and more depressed every day, and I I figured I'd either drink myself to death, or because I didn't have the guts to commit suicide, or um, or I'd change things around. So, what made you pick up the phone and call that therapist? Do you know? No, I'm... no, I don't. I I interviewed her for a story I did uh, just recently, or for a. For a presentation that I did at, at a, an addiction conference at UVU, and I thought it'd be interesting to go back and interview her. Said ah. said what do you remember about that phone call? And you know, and she she said, "Well, you were you sounded like you were pretty out of it, but you also were asking for help." And I figured, she said, "It wouldn't have been in my place to come to your house to help you get to your to get to detox, but but I I made sure there was a bed for you if you could make it there." So. I, I don't remember. I, I wish I knew because if you could find that switch that clicked in my brain at that point and you could you could manufacture that for everybody who's who's dealing with addiction, that'd be a pretty valuable well, well, switch. Something you it?
1: just said a moment ago, though, might be a little bit of a light on that. And, and, and we're not going to know for sure because you were <laughs> drinking does, at yeah. the time. But you said, I was either going to drink myself to death or... I'd turn it around. And to me, that's that's that little glimmer of hope that is always associated with that switch flipping for people. So why the switch flips may be unique for each person, but hope is always part of it. And it sounds like there was something inside of you that was still thinking, I could turn this around.
2: I guess there was. I mean, I, I don't know. That That makes sense, though. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have... Just kept drinking and
0: died. Now, you said something that uh, struck a chord with me is that, you know, I've only been in the recovery system uh, a little over 200 days. But there's – from people who have been in the recovery world for long amounts of time and had their sobriety, they always say – they either flipped the switch or something clicked with them and, and and you hear that with most people with their success stories that it was it was either this or that and, and and for some reason this took for me or this made sense and and you want to find that in in yourself and what's going to be the switch what's going to be the click And
1: I think hope as a concept drives a person to find that switch for them, you know, whatever it is. I think for a lot of people, it has to do with not wanting to give up the positive parts of their identity. And I think for for the two of you, it's interesting because your identities are, uh, like most of us, wrapped up in your professional self. I mean, it's a big portion of your identity. But also, your identity is public. You know, that professional identity is very public. And I think that that creates a sense of competency, like, I have something to offer to other people. And that connection sometimes helps a person maintain hope during really difficult times, that connection with other people, as opposed to perhaps somebody who has their identity is very isolated and it's not connected with other people in a public way. So I think as much as that, what the two of you and other folks, Hope and others, are struggling with, while that can be difficult, it, it can also be helpful. Because, you know, your, your brain might have been thinking, people are watching me stumble through this lobby, and I, I want to show to other people that I still have something to offer. And it's sort of like, a, a, like peer pressure in, that works for you hmm. instead of against you. And I, I have no idea if that was your experience or not, I but I've know. talked to others yeah. where they think that maybe that was part of the motivation to kind of get back on track.
0: I I remember saying in an earlier podcast uh, after I got my DUI and I'm getting ready to go to uni the day uh, the next day, I w- couldn't sleep that night and I'd wake up and I'd go look in the mirror and I remember telling Dr. Matt, I didn't recognize the guy in the mirror, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's what really scared me because I was starting to become that guy and not who I knew I could be and wanted to be. And so for me, that was really powerful going... I don't want to be that guy. And the guy looking back in the mirror, that's not Casey Scott. That's not me. I, I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy for my kids. I don't want to be that guy for my family. I don't want to be that kid for the public. That, that's not who I am. So that really gave me a, a sense of drive going, no, this is not how my story ends. This is not how it ends. I, I didn't work all this way to, to end it like this.
2: I, I think Matt's right. And I, maybe that's motivated me as well the fact that you have been fighting to get where you are or were uh for years you get there and then you screw it up and then do you say okay uncle I give up I give up on life or I'm going to somehow turn this around and and maybe I was thinking the same thing it's, and without looking in the mirror cuz and you my got, eyes would have been glassy and I couldn't <laughs> have seen much. I think,
1: I, I think both of you have a
2: competitive
1: streak, right? Wouldn't you both oh, agree horribly? with that? Yeah. Horribly. And you have so to in this industry. You have to. Nobody succeeds in a such a competitive industry without being. And so I think that can be a, a a trait that people draw on in those really dark times. I'm either going to drink myself to death or I'm going to turn this around. And
0: that competitive streak i think probably is part of that switch but that competitive nature is also a hindrance in my drinking because if somebody told me i couldn't drink Watch, I'll show you. you know, but, I mean, I really would think that I'll way. make sure not to say that to you now, yeah, Casey. Yeah, but I would do that, and I don't know if that was how you were. It's like, Look, who my, are... my wife
2: was always telling me, you know, can you, can you not drink as much? Can you please slow down, which would only speed me up. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I don't know. It's double-edged sword, Casey I guess. and I were talking earlier about the big book from AA, and mm-hmm. there's a chapter in there, and they wrote that back in the 30s, and mm-hmm. it was To the Wife. Was the name of the chapter? Women back then were not alcoholics. It was only men. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but the the chapter basically says, don't tell your husband who comes home drunk every night not to drink because he's going to drink more. Yeah. And 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 that's that, sort of the way you know I was like that. You sound like you were. Oh you yeah. Know, you know.
0: Yeah. Who are you to tell me what I can right. do? I'll show you. I can do it. Yeah. And I can do it all. Do it all. Drink all night and work all day. But the reality is that you can't. You're right. Your worlds do collide. So you find yourself in that bed. You get up there, and uh, you're in the uni for how long? Detox for, I think it was five days. I
2: don't know, five or six days. They keep checking you out, and they say, okay, you're... And they they give you some... Ativan and Librium. Librium is is what they gave me, and then they wean you off it, and if you're okay... They release you, and I immediately went in, into uh, my second time around at,
0: uh, it's called Recovery Works, which is their version of an outpatient program. And so you did outpatient. Why did you do outpatient rather than an inpatient?
2: It's a good question. I think I was afraid
0: to do residential. Uh, I don't
2: know. I Maybe because I knew it because I'd gone through it once <laughs> and I knew some of the therapists there or something. I don't know. I just felt more comfortable doing that. I probably, in in retrospect, I, I should have gone into residential because it would have been a much more controlled environment where I didn't have free time. Uh, but I think I was thinking at the time that I wanted to get a job of some kind. Uh, so
0: that fits rather well, having to just go in the evening. So what did your outpatient uh Rehab look like? I mean, what what was a day to day for you?
2: It was, I think, three or four hours a night, uh, and you you were divided into small groups, and then there were different activities on a on a daily basis. You'd do a different thing every day, and some of them I thought were goofy, like they'd have you, uh, they'd have you dance. Uh, They'd have you. Those were the things I didn't like. They'd have you climb ropes and then stand down below 10 and, and I know why they were doing it and everything yeah. but uh and I preferred the, and then one night was family night uh where, where your loved ones would come and I, I spoke at uh, at uh recovery works family night uh, just this week or recently uh because they have some graduates who come in and talk about it so when
0: um, when you were in the program did you get noticed yes and and, and, and how did that affect you
2: uh they they said first of all we're really big on on anonymity here and they and they and they were very good about bringing it up and it wasn't just because of me but in every single group that 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 we had every single day saying okay if if you see each other out in public you're welcome to talk to each other but if you see me uh, you can come up and talk to me, but I'm not going to come up and say hi, Jim. It's good seeing you again, you know, or anything like that. And I, and they, they really told me because that, that was one of the things I expressed a concern about. And they said your anonymity will be protected. What goes on in here stays in yes. here. Was yeah.
1: that hard for you though, being a, such a public figure? I think by the time you were in. In rehab, everybody in the state knew who you sure, were. Sure, and people um, in the
2: group. When we, when you first went into the group, they'd all be sitting there staring uh, at yeah, you. And they're it's like, "Oh,
1: God.
2: it's Randall." And but then we had but to all go hard? around and tell our story. Yeah, it was, was very that hard for you
1: to open up? Because <laughs> I think for other folks I've spoken to, it can be difficult to just be genuine and authentically yourself. It was really because hard. you have that persona.
2: Yes, it was really hard. Yeah, uh-huh. how did you overcome that? I just I fought through it. one of the things you know, you asked me what went on in, you know in in this treatment program and and one of the things we had to do was to get out of the program was to write, I can't remember what they called it, but it was basically an autobiography of everything you went went through in life and 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 they would call you out on it
0: if you were, if you were lying or uh, I've said that before, up. those, those groups are ruthless because yeah. a lot of times you'll yeah. throw one across thinking that this is going to shut people up and get you out of having to be real. Mm-hmm. And people were like, Hey, no, come on, man. Yeah. We're all in the same way. Yeah. We've been using these excuses. Don't not That's where the devil's in the details. <laughs> and so they really want you to, to share and, and they'll call you out on it quick.
2: And I, you know, and I think I learned over the, I can't remember how long the program is. Was it 45 days? Something yeah, like I that? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I learned to begin to share as other people were sharing with me Mm -hmm. because they had things they didn't want to talk about. Some had been molested. Some had been, you know, done really bad stuff when they were high. Uh, And as they began to share and I began to share, it became more of a a mutual thing. And I wasn't as embarrassed about saying...
1: You know, And I hope our listeners are really taking that in, that statement that you just made, because the, those groups are very powerful. And a very important part of recovery is getting down to the honest basics of who you are. And as other people share that, it really has an effect on you, doesn't it? It makes you want to sure, open up and share. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's and, an important thing.
2: And, and it, I mean, it tells me, if you tell me about some horrible thing in your past then I think
0: well I can probably share
2: something in my past, you know, and
0: it works that way. And you know, for a lot of times that's the first time that they've ever said it out loud or they've ever admitted it to themselves. And a lot of times people will drink and use drugs to forget that, to hide it away, sure, to numb sure. it. And so when you get in there mm-hmm. and you start to say it and you say it out loud, that might be the first time your ear, your very own ears oh, has heard it spoken. Yeah. And there is a healing property to that. I mean, it, it really, and then all of a sudden you start to go, okay, this is a safe zone. Yeah. And because people are sharing some of the darkest things they've right. of their lives.
2: The, the, I think the, the biggest thing I remember Leaving there the second time is they ask us, and this sounds really goofy, but to write a love letter to yourself, and then they held on to it for like a month or two and mailed it to you mm. and then you read what you wrote, and it's like dear right. Rand- dear R- dear randall i will I will strive to love myself and respect my body more i mean, I can't remember what all I wrote I still have it in in a file drawer and 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 I read it occasionally uh because one of the things I never did from the age of 13 or 14 when I started drinking, even though I, you know, achieved a fair amount of stardom through TV and stuff, I never loved myself. And I can tell you that with sobriety and, and, and long, long-term sobriety for me, uh, I've, I've begun to love myself. And, and that
0: makes all the difference in the world. That's so important. I remember when uh, we're going to go back and talk about a little bit about being recognized in treatment. When I was at Pinnacle Recovery Center, when I first got in, I, I was I was praying, nobody recognized me. I was hoping. <laughs> Good luck. nobody recognized yeah. me, you know, And for the first four days, you're kind of in a daze. and then I remember one time I'm coming down from my bedroom in the whole house, there was 15 of us were around a computer, and they were looking at old clips of me. <laughs> Doing goofy stuff. <laughs> Doing yeah. goofy stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you'd see them look at the the, the monitor and then look back at me, <laughs> and then... But at that point, everything was out, and that's yeah. when I started because at first I didn't want to share. I was, you mm-hmm. know, I still still was trying to put on this kind of I've got it together, uh, you know what I mean? But it wasn't until I got honest with myself and it's like, well, the cat's out of the bag, yeah. and these guys, you know, let's just, like I you said, I just kind of turned myself over to the system right. and just fought through it and was like. All right, let's 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 be honest and let's go with it.
2: Same thing happened to me. I think everybody in the group was quiet for a while, and they were all looking and thinking. Mm-hmm. And and I think it was probably the third or fourth day somebody brought it up saying, "You're the guy on TV, right?" <laughs> yeah. And I go,
0: "Yeah, yeah right." Yeah. And 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 that broke the ice. And I understand that. Yeah. You know? But, you know, I mean, but I think there's a lot of us out there or a lot of addicts that are afraid to be seen for who they really are because they don't know how other people are going to react. And when you're in that comfort zone of everybody who is kind of like you.
1: Yeah. And I think, Randall, you you made a good point that it the two of you have a unique situation and folks who are well known. It's it's a unique persona. But everybody has a persona or an an attitude or an identity about who they are and drugs and alcohol are are kind of a dirty secret that we don't want to share and so everybody has to break through that ice in these groups at some point and that's why the group is so powerful because that everybody's doing it and that pressure to kind of give in and like you always say casey run an honest program uh, it eventually takes over for everybody. Um, so I, I think it's unique that you know somebody might be sitting across from Randall Carlisle or Casey Scott saying, wow, I'm talking to Casey Scott, telling him all my dirty secrets. But pretty soon you just become Casey or you just become right. Randall and, right. and everybody becomes real. So I think that anybody listening to this podcast who's been through anything like this, they can relate to that because we all have this protected attitude about ourselves and we don't want to, Air our dirty laundry, but by doing that, you start that process of healing, mm-hmm. self-introspection. And like you said, it, it sounds cheesy because we're a bunch of guys talking about loving <laughs> ourselves here, yeah, right. but isn't that, that is so important that, that we learn how to have respect and love for ourselves, and then we stop making self-destructive choices. Right.
0: Let me ask you this, because for me, I always thought it was weird. And I've said this on previous podcasts that uh, I called my mom the second day in rehab and I says, hey, mom. I think I'm in the wrong place. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, there's people in here for meth and heroin. I'm in here for Bud Light. You know, because I didn't see Bud Light as a drug or a drug of choice, of, uh, like a lot of people said, because we'd sit in these groups and they'd all say, oh, well, I can't go down to Pioneer Park because that's where I used to score heroin. Or right. I can't go here because that's where I got meth. And I stood up and I said, this is ridiculous, guys, because after this meeting, all 15 of us are going to get in a white van and we're going to go to my dealer. We're going to go to the Maverick because you guys are an <laughs> I'll get drinks, and that's where I get my beer, yeah, and so did you ever think that maybe you didn't have a problem because beer was legal i think I think for a long time
2: I did you know I, uh, I wasn't like that heroin addict down on the street putting a needle in his arm, you know i I yeah, I did separate myself, and i don't I, I don't know why because I, I I now working at odyssey house and and dealing with people in addiction all the time, I'm no different than any I mean nobody. It doesn't matter. You're, you're dealing with addiction and you're dealing with recovery. And it can be from anything and you can be from any walk of life. And, and we're, we're all the same. You know, and that's, that's what Matt was saying in those groups. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what, you, what, what your drug of choice was or, or what you do professionally. It, it, it doesn't matter. You're an addict. I'm an addict. I'm, I'm an, you an addict. Yeah, you, you give know.
0: something power over you. Sure. And you can't beat it. So we're going to find out if sobriety is possible more with randall carlisle coming up in episode two About addiction and recovery, brought to you by Pitiful Recovery Center. It's where I started my road to recovery. Now, in the earlier episode, we talked to broadcast legend Randall Carlisle. We got the down and dirty. <laughs> we got your story, and I got I got sober in an hour. That was that was pretty good. <laughs> it's I, a sobering know. podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, Randall, let's talk about what you've been doing for the past seven years. Now, I started the first podcast with me seeing you working the checkout center at the Harmons downtown. Uh, was Were you sober then? Oh, sure. That, that was after I went through my
2: second treatment facility. Uh, and I've been sober for seven years. And after I got out of that, I went through... I was determined to stay sober. Uh, so I did a bunch of things. I went to 90 AA meetings in 90 days, which some people recommend you do. I also made doubly sure that I wouldn't get drunk. I took ant abuse for... 8 months and for people who don't know it makes you sick as can be if you drink while you're taking it like Vivitrol it, Vivitrol is a is, is shot you get every 28 days or whatever and it's a it's a dosage, it's a daily dosage of the drug that I was taking every day in pill form and that helps relieve cravings and doesn't let you get high and then that combined with antabuse that would have made me sick as can be if I drank I did that for about 8 months and I went to meetings all the time and I went back to aftercare at uni and I just worked on staying sober and what happened well, in my mind and I you know people at AA meetings would tell me I was weak because I was taking those pills uh what happened in my mind is all the years that I'd been drinking I drank whenever there was either a success or a failure or somebody yelled at me or a fight I would drink over anything and what happened was I knew I couldn't drink so I learned other ways to cope with that, with whatever good or bad happened on a given day, and it sort of went to the back of my mind that that's my release. And so then I stopped taking those pills, and I started looking for work. And uh, this is going to sound, I, I, I tried to, I tried anything but getting back into TV, because I had sort of a bad taste in my mouth, because they seemed like they had fired me un, un, unjustifiably. Uh, and I applied to be a, a shuttle bus driver out at the airport, got turned down. Applied to be a crossing guard, got turned down. I applied at several, and I thought, my gosh, here I am. I'm Randall and, Carlisle. Yeah, how, how come I can't be a shuttle bus driver? Because I wanted something that wouldn't be as high pressure or anything. And I applied at a couple of grocery stores thinking that'd be a way to go. And Harmon's called me back for an interview because you applied online They called me in for an interview, and they hired me as a customer service manager, and I'm sure the only reason they did is because I was well-known from TV, uh, and I didn't know crap about the grocery industry, but I learned really quickly, and I found that a very humbling and very rewarding job, and I'll always credit Harmon's with giving me that chance because I didn't know anything about groceries.
0: Well, I was doing a show on Channel 2 called Fresh Living, and we'd have Bob and Randy in all the time. Yeah, right. And news stations love it when Harmon's comes because they bring all this food. (laughs) And I remember bringing uh, Bob to the side and asked about Randall and asked about you. And he says, you know what? He is such a pleasure. And the customers love him. He shows up. He does his work. And he says, I couldn't be more proud of the job that Randall's doing for us.
2: And my only problem ego-wise, I guess, was... People would recognize me, and they'd say, "I really loved you on TV. What are you doing and working in a grocery store?" And that was a hard thing to. And I simply looked at them and said, "Because I want to." And, and nobody, mm-hmm. you know. But it, but it made me think all the time, you know. And it was like they looked down, you know. It gave me a great respect for people who work in grocery stores because they work, they work their rear ends off. It's a difficult job, um, and and I, I it. I, It was just a hard thing to
0: explain how I felt doing You don't have to explain it to me. I did the same thing because I was delivering furniture, and I would go deliver furniture to people's houses. And I'd walk in, and they'd go, hey, aren't you? And I'd go, yeah. And they'd go, what are you doing this for? And I'd always, you know, I always was quick with a comeback. I would say, it's a rebuilding year. You know, and then if they'd ask, I would tell them about the DUI and okay. the rehab and kind of go into it. But, I, I mean, yeah, it was one of those things where And then I, I know as soon as I got into the car and we were on to the next stop, mm-hmm. they were picking up their phones going, hey, guess you yeah, just delivered right. <laughs> our furniture. You know, and yeah. kind of like I did when I saw you at sure. Harmon's when I went back sure. to the news station. I said, you know who I just saw? And, you know, but it was cool to see everybody in the two newsroom. And I told them about you and they said, good for him great i think that's amazing and i think that's what it is is that you've got to put your ego to the side and 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 just get to work do whatever yeah. yeah
2: and then the strange thing and this 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 made me sort of believe a little bit more of what i hear in aa meetings i've heard heard people say i got sober and good things began to happen for me and i thought well that's whatever that's what you cuz last time believe. you got sober <laughs> you lost a got, job and a wife right, right and after I'd been working at Harman's for a little while, I get a call from Channel 4, and they had been bought by another giant corporation, and they offered me a job back as a weekend anchor, weekday street reporter. So I worked two jobs for a while. I worked at Har- I said, I can't leave Harman's because they were they were really good to me. Uh, and, and I worked two jobs for a while, and then it was just too much. And Harman's was gracious about the whole thing. Uh, but so then I... Go back into TV, and I worked for several years there doing weekends, and I'm covering all the stuff that's going to, down with Operation Rio Grande, and Odyssey House played a big role in in expanding their their bed space to take in people who were arrested in Operation Rio Grande. In phase two was treatment, and so I got to know the people at Odyssey House, and they offered me this job of media and community relations, and and I thought, why. Wow, I've never done that, working for a nonprofit recovery center? And then I and I began to think about it, and I thought, wow, that's that probably is a good way to wind up my working life. Uh, so I've been there. Uh, chan- I still had time left on my channel Four contract. They let me out. I went, I've been working at Odyssey for a year and a half, and I love it. It's just, it, it's it's very rewarding.
1: I'm very impressed with the people that are managing and running Odyssey House. I bet that was a big part of, you know, your desire to work with them.
2: It it, it was, and, and, and I'll tell you one thing. It's a lot easier to stay sober working with people in a recovery <laughs> center than it is working in TV. I bet. Uh, but... Uh, you know they 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 do do a good job, and my 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 goal. They knew that I had good contacts in the media, and my goal is not so much to push Odyssey House as much as to push recovery, mm-hmm. and 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 do as many get get news people to do as many positive stories as they can on the fact that this is a disease. It's not a bad moral choice. I mean, maybe initially it is, but but it's a disease that people are fighting, and. That recovery is possible and and uh, i mean i've the reason it 's so rewarding to me is i I wore two hats I covered the people in news stories down on Rio Grande, and they 'd spit at you and they 'd throw stuff at you and swear at you and and you'd see them just lying around in the street and you think, ah, these people are there 's no redemption possible here and then i' followed them through going through our you know completing our treatment program entering into life with a job and a house and, or a place to live. And, and if you ran into them today, you, w- you wouldn't know that they were down on Rio Grande. And, and recovery is possible with, with anybody. It doesn't have to be somebody who goes to an expensive treatment center or goes to a nonprofit or it, whatever works, works. But recovery is possible, and that's, that's the message I want to get out.
0: So what, what sort of maintenance are you doing for your recovery these days? You've talked a lot about AA, and I, I, I've said that when I went to AA, I, I wasn't a big fan of it. Right. The thing I did enjoy that I liked was that there was a room of 200 people who were similar to me, and I didn't feel alone. For the first time in my disease, I didn't feel alone. And that's what I really liked about it. But you seem to have a, a better understanding of AA, and, and you kind of incorporated it into your recovery.
2: I, I, I go, at, I chair a meeting down on the block, which is the Rio Grande area. I I chair a meeting on Monday evenings, uh, and then I try to go to one other meeting a week, which is my home group. That's what the, the word we were looking yeah. for. Uh, and I prefer smaller meetings. Uh, the one up at uni on Sunday mornings is probably the most popular AA meeting in the valley. Uh, and you said there are a couple hundred people there. Yeah. Uh, but And I prefer smaller meetings. And then every day sort of working at, at, at Odyssey House, I'm sort of dealing in the recovery field. So it's it's been easy for me. And I probably don't go to as many uh, AA meetings as I used to. Uh, but I'm still... Very aware, but every day and uh every every morning I get up and I pray to what whatever I believe in, thanking that thing that your higher power higher power uh for the fact that I woke up sober and that I went to bed, so I do that every night too and so i i and and i and I do a, a gratitude every day i'm I'm grateful for I'm grateful that you invited me down to this podcast I'm grateful that we could connect and talk about this issue uh, because every single person that probably is struggling can find help. And, and so every day I find something to be grateful for. Uh, I don't know. You
0: you know, you mentioned uh, right when you got out of recovery the second time that you did 90 and 90 days, the 90 AA meetings. And we were talking off air. There was a lot of talk off air. But uh, you said the thing that you liked about the 90 and 90 days was that every room has a different feel. Everyone has a different vibe. So if you went to one AA meeting and you didn't really particularly like that one – go check out some other ones because you might find a place that you feel at home with and you get that sense of community that will help you along in your recovery.
2: I, there's there's large meetings. There's small meetings. Uh, the meeting where I go to my home group, we have somebody else who works in radio. We have a couple of lawyers. Uh, we have a couple of homeless people. It's just a nice mix of People who regularly go there, and I, and I, I think that I like that. Uh, I don't know why, but it helps me in my recovery. Uh, and, and there are some meetings I don't like, uh, and especially at first, because you feel out of place when you walk into an AA meeting. Everybody knows the lingo and everybody knows what you do and everything. but you can learn that very quickly, and people are very happy to accept you into the fold because they know you're <laughs> trying to stay sober just like they are, you know. I, you know some people place value uh, great value on aa and others don't I, what 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 have you found
1: you know i think that for such a long time it was the only really well known method of recovery and so uh, thankfully a lot of people have been helped through AA and similar 12-step programs uh, the trend nowadays and the two of you can speak to this uh, from your own experience but is to uh, provide people with an opportunity to make connection and I think Casey you're talking about that even within AA there are a lot of different types of meetings like Randall you said you prefer the small meetings and, and once you get to know the people there you feel more of a sense of connection and community sure. so you ought to kind of flip around till you find a meeting that works for you but there are lots of other treatment methods and modalities. Uh, and I think that's becoming the, the trend is that we were losing a lot of people that would go to an AA meeting. And if I remember the statistics correctly, uh, you know, this is probably 10 years old, but about 50% of people that went to that first meeting didn't go back because they didn't make a connection either with the people or with the method. And that's a lot of people now feeling like, I don't have another place to go. And so if you're not making a connection with that first meeting, I do recommend people go to several meetings and maybe find a community within 12 Steps that works for them. If that doesn't work, then finding other methods that include cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, mindfulness and meditation is showing a lot of promise in a person's life, uh, helping them on a daily basis. And you can do that individually with groups, with therapists. So I think that, uh, that AA uh, plays an important role in, in almost every community, but there are a lot of other options, and I guess my message to people is, if you've tried AA and it's not working for you, there are other things sure. that that we can do. And places like Odyssey House or other recovery centers are, are able to introduce people to those methods.
0: Well, you know, I've often said that my addiction was mine and my recovery is mine. Right. And so, you know, what I'm doing works for me and uh, I get people on Facebook and uh, emailing me, hey, what are you doing? And I always, you know, say, hey, listen, this is what I'm doing and this works for me. I'm not saying it's going to work for right. you. You've got to find your own recipe and uh, see what works for you. And there is a lot of options out there. And that's what this podcast is all about is letting people know that there are myriad uh, options out there, and you can, and, and you, you just need to research it. One of the things that the two of you are both doing is giving
1: back, and I think, regardless of your methodology of getting sober and staying uh, sober, is finding a way to to give back and be uh,
2: productive and
1: selfless in that in that field that you're working in. And I think that's very important.
2: One of the one of the things that I gained with sobriety is I care a lot more about other people. I mean, in my opinion, at least in my addiction, uh, it's a very selfish thing that you do because you're thinking of yourself all the time. You're thinking, where am I going to find the next beer, the next drug to make me feel good or to make me forget? Uh, and and now that I don't have that monkey on my back, I, I care more about other people. I've, I've become a much more peaceful gentle, caring person, and and it and it is enjoyable to give back because I'm not worried all the time about just taking care of my, my feelings, you know.
0: And we appreciate you giving back, and Randall, we want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for stopping by today, sharing your story. If people want to follow more about you and your story, is there anywhere they can go? Yeah, there's, um, I, well,
2: I'm trying to think. Somebody, BYU did a, a <laughs> three-and-a-half-minute piece on me that they posted, I, I can't remember what what the feature is called that they were showing at a U.N. conference, and it was just me talking. It was only three and a half minutes. Uh, it was well done. It got like over twenty thousand views on Facebook. Uh, if you just go to Odyssey House Utah Facebook page, you, you sort of see the stuff that I'm the the news stories that I'm getting out there, um, and or just call me at Odyssey House. I mean, I you know the nice thing about working. In a, in a nonprofit, profit there's, n- there's no time deadline aspect like there was in TV. It's not like, hey, you got to be there. at, you got to be ready to go at, you know, whenever. And I have time to talk to people now, and I have time to do something like this podcast. And uh, it's just so if, if you just call me at Odyssey House.
0: You know, and that's what this podcast is all about, is starting a conversation. Thank you very much for listening to Project Recovery. I am Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. Behind the keyboard over there is John. He's not Board Smith and Randall Carlisle. Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. If you like it, please like it and subscribe.